Welcome to episode two of the Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gave me a reason to live and also wrecked my life. I'm your host, James Toth. I was born, like both of my parents, in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the oldest of three children and the only boy. My mother is fond of reminding me that I, having been a breech baby, just like Frank Zappa, am a born contrarian who insisted on doing things my own way from day one. I find that when I reveal that I grew up in New York City, many people are immediately gripped with inaccurate notions about what that actually means. I guess many picture a scene in which neurotic, self-medicated, highly evolved members of the professional class sit around an imposing oak table with scrolled feet, casually discussing sex, politics, Proust, and Martha's Vineyard. Maybe they send annual donations to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and subscribe to the New Yorker. But there's another kind of New York native, one you are more likely to see depicted in the films of Martin Scorsese than Woody Allen, its blue-collar counterpart, the working-class, profane, ethnic, two-generations-off-the-boat kind, the kind who might say things like, I'll tell yous what, if God forbid I have to come in there, I'm going to kill yous all. This latter New York is the one into which I was born, and was for most of my childhood the only New York I knew. It's a New York that's disappearing. I realized that for certain modern city dwellers, it's disheartening to imagine that their beloved adopted metropolis, with its spellbinding architecture, historic museums, fashion industry, progressive politics, and artisan culture, could also produce plumbers who vote Republican and bear scars from fistfights resulting from parking disputes. Such New York natives are practically an entire different species than transplants from flyover country. Nowadays, it is extremely rare to hear an authentic New York accent on television or in movies, and when it is heard, it's usually deployed to not so very subtly suggest a lack of breeding or character. Like many nominally Roman Catholic families, my family is rather large. I have cousins I haven't seen in over 30 years. I also have relatives I've never even met, including former major league pitcher Ed Lynch and late actor Vincent Gardenia. These last two are outliers. Trace both sides of my family tree as far back as you can, and you'll mostly find generation upon generation of blue-collar workers, civil servants, shopkeepers, and tradespeople. Though there are many shrewd, intelligent, well-read, and well-traveled people in my family, there are very few intellectuals. Everybody in my family swears, and everybody smokes. My sister and I grew up engulfed by the ever-present fog of tradesmen's incense, cigarette butts eternally smoldering in overflowing ashtrays. Many years ago, I had a college friend over for dinner with my family. She was visibly rattled as my younger sister Carrie relayed to the table an altercation with a sassy store clerk. And then this fucking cocksucking bitch, said my then 14-year-old sister. You know what she had the fucking nerve to say? My shocked guest eyed my parents, waiting for the scolding or reproachful slap she was sure would follow. No, my father replied, without a trace of irony. What did the bitch say? Perhaps as a reaction to what I viewed as my family's coarseness, I've always been something of a prude. You'll never hear me tell a poop joke. I didn't even like saying the word poop just now. I guess rebellion takes many forms. While many of my childhood friends from similar backgrounds grew up in Italian-speaking households, the native language of my maternal grandparents was mostly only employed by my family in reference to food. 
Mozzarella was pronounced mozzadelle. Ricotta was rigotte. Marinara was marinata. The only other Italian-derived words my family used were insults. Gavone, which meant glutton. Chiacchierone, which meant chatterbox. And stunad, which meant stupid. If the turn of the century saw the extended family giving way to the burgeoning nuclear family, no one told the Roman Catholic and Jewish clans of the New York where I grew up. Both of my parents were raised in households occupied by both their parents and grandparents, with various cousins, aunts, and uncles typically living just a block or two away. This tradition continued when my parents purchased their second home, which was large enough to accommodate in the lower half of the converted two-family house my paternal grandparents and my uncle. Today, this small ground floor living space is occupied by my sister and her family, while my parents remain upstairs, carrying over to a new generation the custom of collective interconnectedness, that is, the extended family structure. Though my parents were not disciplinarians in any sense of the word, they managed, mostly by example, to instill in my sisters and me a strong moral compass and a sense of accountability. The golden rule in my house was rendered simply thus, don't be a prick, honor your commitments, never be late. I don't recall ever being spanked, though I have many, many memories of being chased. Occasionally, one of my parents would catch me or one of my sisters with a sloppy open hand as we fled the scene of some misdeed. These were not punitive acts of corporal punishment so much as retaliation for some perceived personal affront, such as might instigate a bar brawl. The notion of being disciplined for coming home from school with a bad grade on a test or for getting into a scrap with a neighborhood boy was an abstract one. However, say something like, oh my god, mom, that's so stupid, or I don't give a shit what you say, this is what I'm wearing to Aunt Cecilia's funeral, and my parents would lash out. My father, a police officer who worked in Manhattan's storied 9th Precinct, dutifully held several additional part-time jobs to support us throughout my childhood. On one night, my dad would be tending bar after his shift. Another night, he'd find himself working as a security guard at that same bar. Standing a fit and imposing six foot four, my dad, despite looking a bit like Darth Vader, can be big-hearted, jocular, and charismatic. He can also be fussy, coarse, and critical, a man for whom the arbiter of whether or not a person is white trash is determined solely by that person's choice to grill hamburgers in their front yard as opposed to the back. As far as I can tell, my dad has never in his life given nor received a hug. Mom was your classic Italian-American beauty with an olive complexion and bright green eyes. A former dancer who declined an invitation to become a rockette due to the demands of her overprotective father. My mother is also a first-generation college graduate with a degree in mathematics from Brooklyn College. My mother's amiable, outgoing personality stands in contrast to my dad's brooding stoicism and occasional bouts of private darkness. My mom also possesses the sort of stormy, whiplash temper one might expect from a Sicilian born under the sign of Scorpio, and was in her youth, to use her own phrase, something of a wild child. Her aunt Mattia, who co-owned the popular Venero's Bakery, lived in the East Village, and as a teenager my mom would by day gallivant around Washington Square Park and spend her nights carousing at the Fillmore East, all while ostensibly spending the weekend safely ensconced in Aunt Mattia's Fifth Avenue apartment. My parents' individual parenting styles can be summed up by their independent reactions to a single event. When I was very young, my best friend Emily and I decided we wanted to construct our own cloud. 
we began by stretching individual balls of cotton into thin, diaphanous puffs, which we planned to glue together. Good luck, said my mom, handing me the Elmer's glue. Let me know when it's up there in the sky so I can take a picture and put it on the refrigerator. Soon my father arrived home and asked what we were doing. We're building a cloud, I told him. Then we're going to send it up into the air, and Mom is going to take a picture of it in the sky and hang it on the refrigerator. That won't work, said my dad. Clouds aren't made of cotton, they're made of water, he explained. They're like fog. I believe both of these parenting methods have merit, and I feel that my own personality, which has always vacillated somewhere between dippy carelessness and rigid pragmatism, was formed between these two poles of influence. I'm part wavy gravy, part Hank Hill. In 1979, the year after I was born, my parents relocated to Staten Island, host to the famous Fresh Kills Landfill. Erected in 1948, the landfill predates the Brooklyn-bound Verrazano Bridge by nearly 20 years and is, at over 200 acres, the largest man-made dumping ground in the whole world. There's a recurring joke on the honeymooners about bus driver Ralph Cramden's fear of being demoted to a Staten Island route. When the sitcom aired in the mid-50s, the Fresh Kills dump existed, but the Verrazano Bridge did not. Prior to the opening of the bridge in January of 1964, Staten Island, then accessible only by ferry, more closely resembled an agrarian community than part of the world's most famous city. The presence of roaming sheep and goats was not an uncommon sight. What Ralph Cramden could have never imagined was that the opening of the Verrazano Bridge would eventually more than double the population of Staten Island, practically overnight, bringing to the island retreating Brooklynites, who had grown increasingly disenfranchised due to both the booming population and increasing crime of their former neighborhoods. Many were now also leaving areas which had historically been informally segregated by ethnicity, but were now growing steadily diverse. This is, of course, something of an unfair generalization. In fact, some 7,000 residents of Bay Ridge alone were displaced in order to make room for construction of the bridge. Still, it could nonetheless be argued that a fair number of these modern island settlers made a choice to live amidst actual garbage rather than try to coexist with other ethnic and racial groups. It is to this mass exodus and the many prejudices that inspired it that Staten Island owes its current reputation as New York's most backward, brutish borough. But I've warmed a lot to Staten Island since I left there in 1996. It took returning as an adult to appreciate the island's unique character. When I visit nowadays, I'm often struck by the fact that the same family-owned pizzerias, bagel shops, nail salons, liquor stores, and newsstands of my childhood still exist, and often with the same proprietors tending the counter. I note the abundant parks, hills, and flora that distinguish Staten Island as the most picturesque of the five boroughs and the fact that the island appears thus far to have largely avoided the encroachment of corporate strip mall culture common to other cities. Staten Island remains, for better or worse, a place out of time. Perhaps it is partly due to this reputation, and partly due to its geographical remoteness from the city, but Staten Island also happens to be one of the last remaining areas in the New York metro area where a working-class family can not only survive, but potentially flourish. And a side note... Staten Island produces the finest pizza in all of New York City, and this is not subject to debate. Most biologists agree on a theory known as childhood amnesia, which basically states that humans don't have any memories prior to the age of five. However, a recent study by Alexandra Lamont at Keele University in the UK found that, 
from as early as a year after they were born, children recognize and may even prefer the music they were exposed to in the womb. This is due to the auditory system of the fetus being fully functional about 20 weeks after conception. My parents, who named me after James' sweet baby James Taylor, were voracious music listeners. I don't remember ever not being interested in music. My dad owned a lot of records and had very eclectic taste. He frequently sampled the latest disco and dance singles alongside evergreen favorites like Ozzy, Fleetwood Mac, and the Eagles. A lot of my earliest memories of my dad involve him cleaning things. While dad listened to music as he engaged in his many domestic chores, my sister Carrie and I would dance to the records he played with the kind of unselfconscious abandon common only to small children and the blissfully insane. My dad was also a devoted maker of mixtapes, which he'd compile for family road trips, just as I would do later, as well as to provide soundtracks to his fastidious quotidian activities. Whenever my mom was visiting the mall, my dad would send her with a shopping list of current records he wanted. One time he asked her to pick up a 12-inch of Lips Incorporated's Funky Town, but my mother instead mistakenly bought Sylvester's Do You Want a Funk? This was serendipitous, as Do You Want a Funk became one of my dad's favorite jams, and he promptly went out and bought every subsequent Sylvester dance single. Years later, when I got into the fuggy, sensual, proto-electronica porn soundtracks of disco pioneer Patrick Cowley, I recognized his production work from those Sylvester records my dad always played. My mom and I seldom missed Casey Kasem's video countdown show, and I loved listening to the radio in the car. But at age six, music remained for me an abstract, spectral thing, merely a welcome and ubiquitous aspect of my daily environment that I took for granted. My father was the first to recognize my fledgling interest in music. Until this point, the only records I owned were rejected hand-me-downs from older cousins, Chipmunk Punk, and a 45 of Memory from the Broadway musical Cats. My dad would often ask me as we left one of the many Stallone and Schwarzenegger films we attended together what I liked about the movie we had just seen, and I would invariably comment on the film's soundtrack. One day, probably tired of me messing with his record collection, my dad took me to the mall to pick out some of my own records. I chose Starship's We Built This City, Mr. Mr.'s Broken Wings, Howard Jones's Things Can Only Get Better, and Duran Duran's Wild Boys. I learned to listen to the B-sides, and I got familiar with the notion of the deep cut, although knowledge of such terminology was, of course, many years away. The 45 RPM picture sleeves represented the first artwork I ever appreciated, fostering in me an admiration for the aesthetics of physical media that would last a lifetime. Concurrently, I was developing an interest in books, an affinity my dad also noticed and nurtured, and which began growing in tandem with my passion for music. My father would recommend to me his favorite tales in Stephen King's collections of short stories. The Jaunt was a mutual favorite, and I reread it last year and I still think it's a fantastic story. I would devour these books feverishly. My mother, not to be outdone, arrived home from the mall one day with a collection of pre-teen horror and supernatural novels from the Dark Forces series, and these were the first novels I ever finished. The Doll, Beat the Devil, and Unnatural Talent. Reading was encouraged, and unlike with action figures or trading cards, I soon found I could usually convince my parents to buy me a book whenever I wanted one. Dean Kuntz, Stephen King, and Clive Barker soon became my favorite authors. The first time I remember being aware of a woman who wasn't my mom was when I began noticing the sleeves of my dad's Blondie records. 
Debbie Harry was definitely my first crush, so to speak, but less prosaically, I mark Blondie's album covers as my flashpoint of sexual awareness. I remember wanting to know this gorgeous woman named Blondie, as I knew her on those album sleeves, and thought maybe I'd like to be abducted by her. It was the 80s and kidnap panic was at an all-time high, but it was something I fantasized about. Debbie Harry looked cool, elegant, and intimidating. She sang about tearing phones off the wall, ripping other women to shreds, and vowing, one way or another, to get me, the little boy listening to her songs. I'd listen to the music in a kind of trance. Real-life girls remain natural enemies, rife with icky cooties. But the music and imagery of these Blondie albums undeniably caused something to stir in me. Meanwhile, my paternal grandmother, Nanny, enjoyed entertaining me during our visits to her home in Brooklyn with her player piano. I loved listening to the piano player roles of Mame, Just a Spoonful of Sugar, High Hopes, and Don't It Make My Brown Eyes Blue. Nanny would frequently sing along to these songs, interrupting herself whenever she encountered a note out of her range with what would become something of her catchphrase, Oh, I can't go that high. Decades before I would learn about John Cage's theories of musical indeterminacy, Nanny and I poked random holes into some of the less played piano rolls to hear the dissonant clusters that resulted when we played them back. Though a practicing Catholic, Nanny also taught me about tarot cards and palm reading, poker and blackjack. She often bribed me to sing to waitresses and other strangers. My signature piece was Tomorrow from Annie. God, that must have been insufferable. The first concert I attended predates my first memory of music or of anything else. It was Sha Na Na in 1982 when I was barely four years old. I don't remember a thing about it, but was told later that I had met members of the group and entertained them with my impression of the band's greasy singer, Bowser. It would be difficult to underestimate the influence of the extra-diegetic music I heard throughout my adolescence when watching television, as well as that of sitcom theme songs and station ID bumpers. My first encounter with three of my all-time favorite songs, I mean top ten Desert Island stuff, was when I heard those songs utilized as the theme music of then-popular television shows. Now, the idea that nostalgia plays no small part in these affinities is something I'll readily concede, but I still count Angela, theme from Taxi by Bob James, Ray Charles' version of Georgia on my mind, as heard during the sixth and final season of Designing Women, and God Bless the Child, sung by Jerry Lawson from The Persuasions, from the short-lived Charles S. Dutton vehicle Rock, as some of my all-time favorite tunes. Years later, when I began exploring the sophisticated jazz fusion of the Pat Metheny group and Weather Report, and the sort of fusac of Jeff Lorber and Chuck Mangione. It almost felt as if this music was activating ancestral memories. The theme songs of primetime soaps Dallas, Dynasty, and Falcon Crest, all of which my mother watched religiously, remind me of lying in bed with a flashlight and a copy of Mad Magazine, anxious about the coming school day and unable to sleep. The Matlock theme immediately takes me back to those glorious days when I'd skip school, and returned to an empty house to do whatever I wished for six unsupervised, solitary hours, which I guess included watching Matlock. The theme songs of children's programming on Nickelodeon shows like Doug and Clarissa Explains It All remind me of my sister Carrie, and PBS bumpers and Vince Giraldi's A Charlie Brown Christmas are almost directly related to my later interest and even my specific taste in jazz. I chart the beginning of civilization's descent into barbarism with the first television sitcom to dispense with the theme song. Nowadays, very few programs even have identifiable theme songs. 
From the 50s through the 90s, though, situation comedies and dramas often had not one but two distinct songs, one at the beginning and one during the final credits. Anyway, back then I was absorbing whatever I could, but without an older sibling to illuminate the path, I was frequently frustrated in my quest for musical tidbits and information. I pieced together information from magazines, album covers, and the occasional misinformation from a friend or relative. In the pre-internet age, this obviously resulted in many false leads. Run DMC often rapped about sucker MCs, and so I assumed that the sucker MCs were a rival group. The Sex Pistols called their album Nevermind the Bollocks, which I took to mean that the Bollocks were an adversarial band I was being encouraged to ignore. I often wondered what these groups sounded like. It went as far as my asking a baffled clerk at Tape World if her store stocked any albums by the sucker MCs. Sade's song Smooth Operator was a song my dad loved. I remember that this song presented a particular challenge. Without grown-up context for these words, the lyrics left my eight-year-old mind very confused. Okay, smooth. I knew smooth, as in something nice to touch, like baby skin. Operators I knew helped you make phone calls, and I had some vague impression of an operator as a young girl with wires sticking out of her ears. So, whenever I heard smooth operator, I imagined Sade in a cubicle, wearing a headset, having very supple skin. My parents weren't much help. Despite his passion for music, my father was totally uninterested in the trivial demands of pop culture scholarship. He was also what we would now refer to as a singles guy. He loved 12-inch dance mixes and 45s. The only complete albums I remember my dad ever listening to all the way through were The Traveling Wilburys Volume 2, Fleetwood Mac's Greatest Hits, Tears for Fears, Songs from the Big Chair, and Ozzy's Blizzard of Oz. He often responded to my obsessive questions about songs, artists, and albums with a blank stare. My mom loved Elvis and the Stones, and her favorite band was 60s pranksters David Peel and the Lower East Side. She was also a fountain of musical misinformation. Boys of Summer, my mom told me, was about baseball. Gimme Shelter, she said, had something to do with the Manson murders, likely confusing it with the Beatles' helter-skelter. The MC in the name MC Hammer stood for the rapper's initials, probably Michael something. To beat it meant to stop fighting. The name Danzig sounded Czechoslovakian. Little could we have known at the time that my hero Glenn Danzig, born Glenn Anzalone, was an Italian like us from only 30 miles away in Lodi, New Jersey. Sometimes the things my mother told me were born not out of ignorance or her attempt at a best guess, but of an intentional desire to keep my mind out of the gutter. As a result, I went for years thinking shake your booty was about wiggling your foot in a circle, which my mother goofily demonstrated to me after I eyed her skeptically. My mother also had a strange sense of humor. She would delight in having me repeat inappropriate lyrics from current pop hits, like Rod Stewart's lustful, Do You Think I'm Sexy?, and Musique's lewd, Push Push in the Bush. For years, I tried to picture what exactly was being shoved into shrubbery, and for what purpose. That wraps up this episode of The Toad Zone. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to be alerted about new episodes, and please tell your friends. I'm on Twitter at JimmyJackToth. See you next time when you will learn the name of my very first band and maybe even hear some samples of that band. I hope you're ready. This is the Toth Zone.